Hi, I'm Dubba. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and thanks so much for listening to the MTF podcast. Now, if I was forced to pick a single person who summed up the MTF community, it would probably have to be Anne Devinger. Anne brings so many of the different threads together academic, entrepreneur, music geek. She's a regular attendee, and you'll find Anne at every area of the festival, from the symposium to the playground, the creative labs to the showcase stage. So we thought we should get her on the interview stage, too. And she not only has a fascinating story to tell, she has fantastic advice for people wanting to start any sort of project. Anne describes herself as a bionic woman, an amputee since birth, she's embraced the cyborg possibilities of prosthetics and invited hackers at MTF Stockholm to get hacking on her leg, which already boasts an incredible 3D printed fairing. She was at MTF representing her Danish startup, Lofi, a fantastic community for user-generated, intimate concerts in people's homes. She spoke to Stockholm's Frida Almgren about being tech-curious. Enjoy. So, hi everyone, my name is Frida Almgren, I'm an entrepreneur, I've just started off my own company, I'm running a communications firm doing PR and communications for tech and other industries, uh, as well as doing moderating services, but enough of me, I'm here to introduce our next uh, guest, Anne Devinger. Thank you very much. A music geek and an entrepreneur and a bionic woman. I'm so excited to meet you again. Yes. How are you? Yeah. Chat earlier this week. Yes. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. A bit worse for wear. This is now like three days in, uh, with two days of symposium and and uh, and the beginning of the hack camp, which is why I'm wearing the fantastic and much coveted pink T-shirt. Because uh, the whole lo-fi team is upstairs playing away at some sort of creative, fun solution to one of the challenges. Super interesting. <laughs> so, um, you've been researching um, sort of what happens when you take music into new places, unexpected places, venues. Um, can, you, can you share a little bit about that? What, what have you, um, what did you discover? Yeah, so um, I actually um, have a past... Uh, as an academic. I say I'm a lapsed academic. Um, I left academia three years ago, but I spent 10 years as a music researcher at Copenhagen University and sometime in London, sometime in New York. Um, And one of the things that I spent time looking at was what happens when we move, when we take music, live music performances out of the spaces that we're usually accustomed to meet live music performances in. Um, Whenever we enter space, we're culturally conditioned to perceive of the rules that the space sets up for us, right? This is, if anybody's familiar with Christopher Small's work on musicking, but it's not complex at all, the idea, and you will recognize this. So we all know that when we go into a concert hall, and we're supposed to do all the sort of conversation and having a drink and socializing out in the foyer. And then the minute we sort of step into the concert hall, we're all guided into neat rows and we're to sit there and there's this reverent, the music is up and there's this whole sort of... So that's one type of behavior. Um, the jazz club is a different type of behavior. Tables and chairs are still sort of facing the music, but you're allowed to have your drinks and be a little more social. And then there's all the social rules of when to clap and not to clap. The jazz audience is really one of the most policing audiences you can possibly find. Um, and then, you know, there's the rock pop venue where, you know, there's like the open floor space, there's like multiple bars, and this signal that you're perfectly allowed to sort of party quite hard while the music is going on. 
So we all know this and we all pick up on these very quickly when we start going out to hear music, um, if we do that sort of thing. But what happens then when we moved it? And initially I actually worked with urban space. I worked with urban jazz festivals and what happens when, when, when the city sort of becomes infiltrated with music. Um, but at one point I got preoccupied with what happens when we put live music into people's living rooms. Um, and the interesting thing is that, so we all understand the living room. We all know what that is. It pretty much plus minus looks the same across cultural divides, low seating, low soft seating, personal knickknacks, not necessarily. Lighting is like here in Scandinavia, we all like those little sort of mood lights in the corner. Elsewhere in the world, you will have like really bright lights in the ceiling. But so that's the biggest difference. But the sort of physical uh, layout of a living room is pretty much the same. So we all understand it again. We're culturally conditioned to perceive of this space as a quite a safe space. Um, and we enter it and we drop our guard a little bit because it is a safe space. However, then we put music inside of it and suddenly somebody has altered this safe space. So it's made slightly strange. So that means we end up in this liminal sort of place where we're not quite sure what's going to happen. And a very simple thing happens that the rule book of concert behavior is blown wide open. There are no rules. It's like they've like been suspended. What am I supposed to do here? Is it okay if I meet the other audiences? If I go over and say, hi, as you do, because you entered a private home. This is what you do when you're in guest at somebody's home. You're like, hello, my name is Anna. If you did this in a music club, they'd be like, oh, stalker. <laughs> so, so people go, they meet each other, they meet the, the musician. Um, there's not, never, I've never been to a lo-fi concert where anybody, like phones disappear, devices disappear, um, quiet, no noise, no people talking in the bar, no coffee machines or beer machines making noises, nobody spilling beer down your back, nobody watching an entire concert through their little ridiculous screen. Um, conversation, musical, spoken between musicians. Um, the last one that I was at was tiny, very small crowd, and we actually ended up thinking it was a bit silly that we all know who the artist was, but she didn't know who we were, so we did like a round of introductions, who we were. And she was cross-legged on the floor, and it turned into this conversation about art and music and life. And the, at the very end, everybody was just dancing in a big circle in the living room. So, so that's, I, this format is incredibly powerful in terms of turning people Sort of, sort of tuning out and tuning in to use an old, good old sort of 60s, 70s uh, expression where you leave all that noise and alone and, and aside from, from all our social media that we need to be online all the time, go offline and just be present. So interesting. So I think you touched upon it, but so you say yourself that at some point you sort of fell in love with your research. So you started, you became an entrepreneur, you started lo-fi. Yes. Um, but can you take us to the moment when you're actually like, I need to, to contribute to this space, I need to change something. What, what happened? Yes, yeah, so, so simultaneously with discovering and, and looking into this format of the, the house concert, I was also thinking, oh, I need to come up with my next research project, because I was never, I didn't have tenure, so you just have to keep doing research projects. And I thought, and I was looking into creating a research project around the sort of economic and cultural and social sustainability in the music uh, and the way that digitization has changed the flow of money in, uh, in the music industry. 
And I thought, all right, you do that. Euros, do a big cross-European project, do it for three years. We're very, very, very good at this thing in, that in EU speak is called knowledge transfer. I will maybe reach a thousand people. I, I will maybe sort of get out to, a th but then we have to be really good at it over the course of three years. And I thought, I'm not sure that's quite enough. I think actually that's a bit unambitious. Um, I think maybe this time I'm going to have to do something and build something that can impact more people and can last longer. Um, so I quit my job, <laughs> which felt like a, an insane thing to do, but it also felt like the only thing to do. And went started this journey of, of, creating, um, of creating something that could have a bigger impact. And I, actually, that's about three years ago, so it's taken us long now to get to this point as it would have been to do a research project. Uh, we just launched our first sort of bespoke app. We've been working with an MVP for a while to get as much data as we could. Minimal viable product, sorry. It's a very scrappy platform. We just launched our first sort of proper uh, platform and, and at this point, we've had at least 3,000 people present, listening, in a room, having conversations. So, I've, you know, already I've met and impacted and affected three times more than I could have done with a research project. And uh, now it's like on to the next 100,000 people. <laughs> so cool. So I just long for Lo-Fi to come to Sweden, where I live. Um, but for those of you that are not as familiar with what Lo-Fi actually do, um, can you tell us a little bit? Because it's, it's, you know, the artist and then it's the audience. And can you, can you explain a little bit how, about yes. how it actually works? So it's an, it's an online uh, community, peer-to-peer -peer platform that connects people who want to host concerts with musicians who want to play concerts and audiences who want to attend. And you can actually sign up to Lo-Fi and be all three of those at once. Um, we, uh, we do curate musicians to make sure, and we also curate hosts to make sure that people understand what it is exactly we're doing. Um, there will always, there's never anybody who plays for free uh, with Lo-Fi. Um, I get a lot of sort of comparisons to other sort of concert arrangers that do sort of intimate secret gigs in intimate unusual spaces. Uh, and there are two main differences. Is one that we insist that musicians get paid every single time. I, we have kicked people off the platform for contacting musicians to play for free. Um, and, and also that everybody can get in touch with everybody. So you can reach out to that artist that you saw and heard and you can reach out to the host you can also reach out to all the people that were at that concert so it's a the idea is that that it should be a self-generating community and we're not really the concert arrangers um the artist and the host co-create the concert together and then the economy sort of centers around that um and it's working um it's sort of it's taken a long time for us to find out exactly what it was we were doing but now that we, sort of within the last year, we really got a good grasp of it. Now we can see it. As you under, this is an interesting exercise. As you sort of build something and you're trying to figure out what the hell it is you're building, because you don't really know, you sort of know. You know what you want to achieve, but you have no idea how to get there. And you, then you're like, oh no, maybe we should do this other thing, like be a booking platform. And I was like, no, let's not be a booking platform. That's very status quo, won't change anything. Um, you sort of, your message, the communication is very 
muddy. But the minute you get yourself and the sort of the gels into something very specific, your communication becomes much stronger and then suddenly you get people coming in where you don't have to explain everything 15 times. And like for the first time we're actually having our hardest thing or not to crack is getting hosts. People who's like, yeah, sure, come to my house and play a concert. And now we're, that's the first time that we're actually getting people signing up saying, I'd like to host. And we're like, Where did that ha when did that happen? How did that, we've been trying to explain this concept for so long. And now it's just happening on its own. So that's really exciting because that is one of the sort of core parameters for growing the community. So cool. Um, as uh, a fairly new entrepreneur, I'm also interested in hearing like you're, uh, are you a risk taker and going from the academic world to becoming an entrepreneur? Um, or did you get a lot of support or, you know, did people question your idea? How was that journey? Um, so when I told my colleagues at university, they were like, oh dear. Like, I was like, no, I'm fine. Nobody's died. I'm <laughs> it was very interesting. But no, I'm, I'm, uh, I, there was a moment in time where I personally and financially um, was able to do this. Uh, my, had my support system was in place. Uh, I have an amazing husband. Um, I had a little extra money that I could spend. I ended up spending two and a half years without a paycheck. Um, so that was... Uh, that I've never been so broke in my entire life. And I've never been so okay with being so broke. It's a very interesting experience. I thought I needed... Like, I actually thought I was one of those people who needed... Who couldn't be an entrepreneur because I really wanted the comfort of having that paycheck go in every month. And it turned out it just wasn't very important, actually. It was like, fine, whatever. We'll figure it out. You, has, you figure it out. You do your hustle. You do, like, we at one time we had two places we could go back and forth. So then I Airbnb'd one place while we were at the other place. And you, you figure it out. You do all kinds of weird little consulting jobs to sort of make ends meet. And then you have, I was incredibly fortunate to have this amazing uh, person by my side who um, not only supports morally, but is also able to support financially. Um, so that's been a, an, an enormous benefit. You just lower your cost, living costs. It's fine. Inspiring. Um, I also know when you started uh, Low Five, I mean, before that you were, you know, interested in tech, but that sort of opened up your eyes for the possibility of tech also in your private yes. life. I mean, yes. looking at your fantastic leg. Maybe yeah. you want to talk a little bit about that. I totally will. Um, so I'm actually wearing a 3D printed fairing. Um, I have a prosthetic leg and I'm wearing a 3D printed fairing from a company called Unique. Um, what they do is they they sort of try to push the boundaries for what our sort of image of people with disabilities um, are. Uh, I grew up as a one-legged person. I was uh, I was amputated when I was a very young child, and and throughout my childhood that was hard. That was a really difficult thing. It was I got it was fine. It was on one hand it didn't matter, but then whenever you meet people, so if it was just me and people I knew, it didn't matter. But then you get met by the by the outside world, and the outside world reacts in really weird ways um, to you being a one-legged person. So so I spent a lot of my youth sort of trying to hide it. And um, and then as I sort of, I was actually uh, in a talk with uh, a, a Swedish um, uh, presentation by a Swedish man called Hannes Schöbler, who's a, uh, um, a transhumanist, if anybody knows what that is. It's people who hack their own bodies, uh, putting chips inside and doing all kinds of interesting things. 
And he did this talk and he's like, yes, you know, like we all think when we talk about cyborgs, we all think of this. And then there was a, a slide with, uh, with, uh, with Terminator. And he says, but these are the real cyborgs. And then the next slide is like a bunch of little old ladies with their like roller things and their pacemakers and their artificial hips. And I was like, oh my God, that's me. Fuck, I'm a cyborg. That's really cool. And I was like, all right, okay. I'm, I can see this. This is fun. This is interesting. There's been this push towards changing the conversation about what it's like to, you know, whether, whether you're actually, whether disability is even an interesting word. I met, it's an organization in the US that calls it diversability. Um, and for me, it's been this incredibly liberating thing to go in and embrace meeting all these techies. And the conversations that happened that for me has, that has changed is that before when I met people, that sort of looked at me and they're like, oh, she walks weird. And then they asked, well, what happened to your leg? And I was like, nothing really. I have a prosthetic leg. And people were like, oh, dear, I'm so sorry. Right? That's, that was the conversation I used to have. But now the conversation is, oh, wow, that's so cool. And it's a much, much nicer conversation to have with people. So entering into this, I'm not a techie. I couldn't, you know, I can, I can Google enough to change the color of a link in CSS, sure. But I'm not a tech person. Um, but I'm, as I say, I think in my bio, I coined this word, I said I'm, I'm tech curious. I, I think there's so many possibilities. There's so many, so much stuff that you can do. The first MVP that, um, that was built for LoFi, I actually built, because I had to build something for this accelerator program that I was in. And I had sort of stupidly said I would have a platform 10 weeks from that conversation. So I had to do my research. I found, uh, found a... Um, a uh, a tool that I could use it took me about three days to find the correct tool that didn't require any coding from me. And then it took me two days of content making and creating some really, really, really bad graphic design. That was like, you had to upload a logo. And I was like, I don't have a logo. All right, put a logo up there. Find, like, do something. And then, like, five days later, I actually had a platform and then spent the next five weeks inviting musicians to the platform. And then at the end of those 10 weeks, I had built a platform, had the first concert happening, had the first sale of tickets through the platform. So, and so basically, if you, can, if you can see it in your mind, you can hold it in your hand. That's sort of my main premise for, for doing almost everything these days. That's so good to hear, I think. Just uh, one last question. I yes. think um, also you talk about, or we in general talk about co-creation, uh, crowdfunding, etc., doing things together. You also talk about experiencing music together, like yes. co-experiencing and really taking responsibility for, yes. for that. Can you just, you know, shortly uh, elaborate a little bit about so that? So that's, that's back to sort of blowing that, that rule book of, of concert behavior wide open. Um, because when you are put in a situation where there aren't really any rules everybody suddenly have a responsibility for what happens in that room. So at, at these concert moments, the, the concert happens as something that everybody creates together, the musician, the host, and the audiences. Um, and that shared responsibility for the, for the concert moment provides a shared sense of identity and purpose that's really powerful. Um, it creates connections between people that you'd never normally see in a concert situation. And, and for us, it also means that people are, are 
have deeper connections to the artists. Um, they have a want to support and keep supporting that artist. Uh, people will, after the concert, conversations will keep going. Um, we can see people meeting up across different concerts and, and attaching. But this moment, we actually call it um, internally, we sort of have this, we say it's like it's amplified togetherness, which is what these concerts bring about. And we, we do think that every time that this happens, it makes the world a tiny bit better. You know, we form connections between people. So if we can just do that one living room at a time, incrementally, you know, we're not... There's a lot of people say, oh, we want to disrupt the music industry. We're not even in the music industry. We're in the let's get people together industry, actually. I think that's so great to end on such a positive note to say amplified togetherness. I will bring that with me and check out Low Five. And thank you so much, Anne, for the conversation. Thank Give you her so a much, big guys. hand. Thank you. Anna Devinger with Frida Almgren at MTF Stockholm. You should go check out Lo-Fi online. There's a link on the podcast page. And I love that idea of amplified togetherness. That's such a great way of expressing some of the feedback we get from Music Tech Fest too, because it's all about the people. Putting different kinds of brilliant minds in the room and making new connections and collaborations. Anyway, thanks very much for downloading, listening, subscribing, and hope you're enjoying these. Feel free to go back through and check out some previous episodes. Maybe have a bit of a binge and drop us a note on our Facebook page. Say hi. Let us know you've been listening. We'd love to hear from you. Have a great week and talk soon. Cheers. Cheers.